0: 18 years ago, the station nightclub in Rhode Island went up in flames, killing 100 people and injuring hundreds more.
1: People refer to this as the perfect storm of fires because so many different things went wrong. And if just one of those things had not gone wrong, everyone would be alive today.
0: From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We'll talk about the fire and its aftermath. Plus, we'll get some advice on how to handle microaggressions.
2: The microaggressions are often things that people experience daily, and oftentimes the people who commit microaggressions don't realize that they're doing so. And what a forest sounds like can indicate the health of an ecosystem.
3: Uh, Sounds leave no fossils, no isotopic signatures. For the most part, they're here one millisecond and gone the next.
0: We'll listen to what one forest in our region has to say. It's next.
4: Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
0: I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. It took 90 seconds for the fire at the Station Nightclub in Rhode Island to turn deadly. A hundred people died. 230 were injured. It was one of the deadliest fires in American history. A new book by journalist Scott James re-examines the events that happened in February of 2003. The book Trial by Fire, A Devastating Tragedy, 100 Lives Lost, and a 15-Year Search for the Truth includes new evidence and new interviews. And Scott joins us now to talk about the book. Scott, welcome to Next.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So you start the book with Those Deadly 90 Seconds at the Station Nightclub in 2003, and share with our listeners what happened in those seconds.
1: Well, the band Great White comes on the stage at this tiny roadside nightclub uh, called The Station, and they start their set by shooting off fireworks, pyrotechnics called gerbs. These are 15-foot gerbs in a club that only has 12-foot ceilings. The fireworks ignite highly flammable foam that's on the walls of the nightclub, and within seconds, the entire place becomes an inferno. And 90 seconds kind of marks the the difference between life and death uh, for people. If you did not get out of that building 90 seconds after that fire started, you were dead or left dying. Very few people uh, lived who were there after that 90-second mark. 100 people died, hundreds were injured, and really the ripple effects were felt by thousands.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about why it happened so fast, but first, one of the things you do so well in the book um, is put us there at the scene during the fire, and honestly, it's traumatic as a reader to read it, but you do that successfully by interviewing a number of people who were there that night, like Gina Rousseau. So tell us a bit about who Gina was and her experience.
1: Well, Gina was there at the nightclub with her uh, fiance, Freddie. And it's really interesting how just little decisions, little twists of fate can change everything in an instant. They had originally gone out to the movies But they got there late, the movie had already started, and they're like, well, who wants to go to a movie after it's already started? So they go to a backup plan is to go to this club and watch this band, Great White. They liked going to live music, so this was part of their routine. So they show up there and get there just moments before the show, find a place right up in front of the stage, and then, of course, uh, all hell breaks loose with this fire, and they find themselves stuck inside this inferno. And Freddie kind of instantly knew that something was up. He panicked as soon as he saw the flames. And this is kind of unique because, in fact, most people who were there watching the show when the fire starts, they think it's part of the act. They think it's part of the stage. So they stand there. Most people are dancing and partying for another 30 seconds after the fire started. So that means when we talked about that 90-second mark between life and death, you have about 60 seconds by the time people realize that this is a dangerous situation and they need to get out. Only 60 seconds to save their lives. So Freddie and Gina make their way towards the entrance, the way they came in, which is what many people did. And this added to the tragedy. People instinctively tried to get out the way they came in. So you had hundreds of people trying to get out one door and it caused a door jam. And Gina and Freddie are stuck in that jam of humanity that's trying to flee for their lives out of that building. Freddie pushes Gina to safety, and then he perishes in the fire.
0: Wow. So let's talk about those 90 seconds a little bit more, because it seems like an incredibly quick period of time for a fire to become so deadly. So talk about why it happens so quickly.
1: Well, this foam that was on the walls of the nightclub, this is there for soundproofing. One of the things that I look at is that there have been complaints by the neighbors of the nightclub over many, many, many years about the sound, keeping them up at night. And so you have new owners take over the nightclub business. And the first thing they're told is basically, look, you've got to deal with the noise complaints of this club or we're going to shut you down. So they go to the neighbors and say, what can we do to help? They offer to buy them air conditioners so they can keep their windows shut at night. But in the end. Uh, One of the neighbors works for a company that sells foam. And as part of the discussion, he suggests that perhaps putting soundproofing foam on the walls would help dampen the noise. This is eventually what these uh, nightclub owners decide to do. And they order sound foam. Now, sound foam, by law, is supposed to be flame resistant, flame retardant, because you use it inside buildings, you use it around people. But instead, what is delivered is highly flammable packing foam. And this foam is the equivalent of solid gasoline. You know, a federal investigation looked into this fire and determined that on the walls of that nightclub was the equivalent of 13 gallons of solid gasoline. So when the band lights those fireworks off, it just explodes and within seconds the place uh, reaches what's called a point called flashover so the way a fire ex- expert explained it to me is flashover is the moment when a, a fire in a room becomes a room on fire so you just have a, a terrible situation because of this foam this is not a normal fire this is not just something went wrong and the, the wall caught fire these walls were highly flammable because of this foam
0: Yeah, so I think this brings us to culpability because the brothers who own the nightclub, Jeffrey and Michael Dardarian, were held responsible, as was the manager of the band Great White, who set off the fireworks. They were all charged with involuntary manslaughter, and two of them did do time in prison. But you draw a somewhat different conclusion in the book about who should have been held accountable.
1: The legal case is interesting in that You basically had three people who were criminally charged, but I'm going to back up a little bit and just say that there are bigger issues at play here than just a few people who may or may not have done the right thing that added to this tragedy. So let's be clear, the tour manager, a man named Daniel Beakley, it was illegal for him to set off those fireworks. Fireworks like that are not legal in the state of Rhode Island. He brought them across the state line. He did not get a permit for them. So there's all of that. There's a question he maintained. He had permission to do it even though the nightclub owners say that's that's simply not the case. So there's that. But let's back up. This is a building that was incredibly unsafe. It was a place where the public was allowed to gather for events like this, and yet it did not have sprinklers. In the 21st century, we have a building where hundreds of people are gathering for for concerts, and the the building does not have have basic fire protections and part of that is because rhode island like many places had not updated its fire codes in decades and so the building was not required to have sprinklers so that's a question like why do we have a system that allowed this fire to take place in the first place Number two, the building had just been inspected. It had been inspected multiple times since the foam was installed and it was inspected just weeks before the fire. And the local fire inspector gave it an all okay. You can literally see the form that says all okay. Well, all was not okay. This place was a death trap and yet the government certified it as safe. And so, before we even get to these screw ups of lighting fireworks inside a a club with a low ceiling, uh, we get to the fact that this was not a safe property. You know, people refer to this as the perfect storm of fires because so many different things went wrong. And if just one of those things had not gone wrong, everyone would be alive today.
0: Now, Scott, you knew Jeffrey Dardarian, one of the owners, which you acknowledge in the book. You guys both worked in TV news together in Rhode Island. You stayed in touch after you left the state. Um, And as we've talked about, many people blame the brothers. You see it a bit differently based on your research. Can you just talk about that connection, though, um, with the brothers and its impact, if any, on your reporting? Because I think, you know, some people might see that and say, well, of course he sees it differently.
1: Well, I think it's interesting that uh, people like, you know, I grew up in a, a suburb of Providence, and so I'm a local guy. And as people know from Rhode Island or even from any part of New England, you know, there, the, the world seems to be, you know, six degrees of separation. But when you get to a place like Rhode Island, it seems to be a degree and a half. And that situation certainly did play out for me. But I thought because I had known these people and because I had worked with these people, that they would, in fact, possibly share with me what they knew. So certainly, um, I hoped because I knew people that they would talk to me. And in fact, they did. But it did not happen overnight. This took a lot of persuasion.
0: I'm talking to Scott James, author of a book about the Station Nightclub fire in 2003. It's called Trial by Fire, A Devastating Tragedy, 100 Lives Lost, and a 15-Year Search for the Truth. Now, Scott, after the fire, you've talked about these systems you feel like failed based on your reporting. So how did fire safety rules change after that?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't know that they really did. There certainly was a lot of lip service. There was some legislation in Rhode Island to update their fire codes after decades of not doing so. But You know, what we would hope would happen with a tragedy like this is that we would do a thorough accounting of what happened and we would put it out there, we would make adjustments. Uh, There were certainly lessons to be learned, but you have to question if they really were. And I'll tell you that here in California, where I live now, there was a fire just a few years ago called the Ghost Ship Fire. 36 people were killed, again in a place where people were partying and having fun. The building was a fire trap. It did not have sprinklers. It was not properly inspected. Does this all sound familiar? So I feel like there's a direct line from the Station Nightclub fire to other fires that have happened around the United States, and I do wonder if lessons were learned. Since this book came out, I was on a radio broadcast, and one of the hosts was railing about the new sprinkler laws that are still, still this is 18 years later, still being implemented implemented for public spaces. And he said that they, you know, were the draconian and, and tough and for businesses to abide by, and it was going to force some businesses to, be, to go out of business in order to comply with these laws. This is a person who lost a loved one in the station nightclub fire. So I do question whether or not our systems have really been reworked as a result of this or whether lessons have actually been learned.
0: For me, reading the book, hearing you say what you just said, it makes me not want to go into a tight concert venue place. What about for you? After writing this and interviewing all these people, would you go to a nightclub again?
1: Look, I think that one of the legacies of this fire and certainly that awful video, which is still out there and can be watched, and now this book, is that we reminds people that they need to look for exits when they go to public places and it doesn't you don't have to just do it at big events but when you go to the movie theater and when you go to a restaurant i went to a concert before the pandemic at a place in san francisco an older place and i remember thinking wow there are not enough exits for all of these people to get out if something goes wrong i went to see ed sharon in foxborough at the uh, stadium there And granted, we're outside, but I'm looking at myself sitting in a chair thinking, I don't think I have the requisite seven square feet that I'm supposed to be allotted. And these are the things you learn when you work on a book like this for a public space. So if things go wrong, and it might not be a fire at a stadium, but other things have gone wrong at stadiums, could I get out of here? And you do talk to your friends and you say, where are we going to meet? What's our exit plan? I would think that that's a lesson, that a, a real-life lesson that we can take away from a tragedy like this.
0: Gina Russo, you, you describe Freddie, her fiancé, giving her a big push at that door where everyone is trying to get out. What happens to Gina afterwards?
1: Well, this is somewhat of a mystery in that we don't know how she makes it outside of the building. Someone dragged her outside, took her the rest of the way. And she is horrifically burned. Uh, She's given last rites. Her children are told to say goodbye. And she's not going to make it. But then she does. She's at Shriners up in Boston, which is usually a burn unit for children. But the number of people who were injured was so dramatic from this that everyone in New England who could help came in to help. And so uh, they try this experimental treatment on her lungs to save her and it works and as a result of using that on Gina that treatment now is actually put into use now to help uh, people survive fires but it's very touch and go and she is as you can imagine destroyed by this she has lost her fiance she has lost herself I mean it's it's hard to describe I mean it's really so Inspiring to to hear her story and see how she gets through what she gets through. But what's amazing about Gina is that after going through all of this, and she went to a very dark place, she was filled with a lot of hatred, a lot of anger, a lot of it directed at the uh, nightclub owners. But eventually she comes out of it. Uh, She comes out of it one night in Boston at the Wang Center. And she is asked to tell her story about surviving her burns at an event there as a fundraiser for a hospital and she finds her voice. She finds her moment and she discovers that the way she's going to heal through this is by talking about it, putting herself out there as an example of overcoming incredible odds to survive. But it doesn't stop there. Her story goes on and she ends up uh, raising money to help other survivors. She ends up building a memorial to the victims. She's an amazing person.
0: Well, Scott, I want to thank you so much for for talking with us and sharing your reporting. It's it's been uh, great to to speak with you.
1: Well, Morgan, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Journalist Scott James is author of Trial by Fire, a devastating tragedy, 100 lives lost, and a 15-year search for the truth. It's about the station nightclub fire that happened 18 years ago this month. Scott grew up in Rhode Island. After the break, communities look out for each other with fridges full of free food. And we talk about microaggressions, how to avoid committing them, and what to do when you're on the receiving end. It's Next.
4: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage. Including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan
0: Springer. The pandemic has laid bare long standing inequities. One of them is having enough to eat. GBH Radio's Soraya Wintersmith reports on how some communities in Boston are taking the issue into their own hands.
5: On the sidewalk of Blue Hill Avenue in Mattapan, Christy Downey and her four-year-old son unload packages of food into the newest community refrigerator in Boston. We've started with some hot dogs and some apples, and we're going to go get some more fruit and some beans and bread. And Downey lives nearby in Milton, but in this census tract where the free fridge sits, more than a third of households lack cars and live at least half a mile from a grocery store, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Her older son recently spent some class time learning about food insecurity, and she and her family saw how deeply the lessons resonated with him, they together leaned into doing something about the problem. She says this lesson in inequality is a concrete thing, easy for her young children to grasp.
6: We are very fortunate in that, you know, we have
5: enough to be able to afford groceries each week. And we, I really want to show my kids that there's, there's people who don't. And we need, and there are resources for people who don't. And we want to contribute to those as best we can. Downey is one of the many people now stocking the dozen or so refrigerators that have popped up on sidewalks in and around the city. In places like Roslindale, Dorchester, Cambridge, and Worcester. Organizers say they're installing the appliances on streets to help address an underlying structural inequity in a grassroots way, by making sure people who are hungry can get food in their neighborhoods. I can't say enough good things about it. I'm just like, I'm in tears. I'm like, oh my God. Janelle Spruel, who grabbed a few items from the fridge for the first time recently, says it feels better than going to a pantry. Spruel's a Mattapan native who only shared that she wanted to bring something home to her young son. The fridge she said, is more accessible and less intimidating. I don't know, maybe you feel safer coming here. Maybe you feel ashamed to go to the food pantry. Maybe the lines are too long. The lines
4: are like so, you know, ridiculous at some pantries that either you don't have the time to wait or it's too cold or, you know, people aren't social distancing and you, you don't feel safe or whatever, but... Yeah, this is awesome. (laughs) Nakia, oh my goodness, girl, like is an understatement.
5: 18-year-old Nakia Jean Charles is the lead organizer for the fridge here in Mattapan. After greeting the new fridge user and showing her where to get hand sanitizer, she tells me providing food and that sense of safety for folks in need is a big part of the movement.
4: So it's definitely around like mutual aid and making sure that they can have access to anything whenever they need to and knowing that they have support and that they don't even really have to ask for It's just right there for them, and they can take it whenever they can.
5: She and other organizers are quick to draw a distinction between the community-based aid they're providing through the fridges and the well-meaning help that charitable operations offer.
4: You just don't get the same vibe of, like, are you really trying to help us or are you treating us like a charity case? And we never want to feel that way with our community members.
5: Jean Charles says her Haitian heritage is part of her personal inspiration for joining in the Free Fridge movement. She says even though the Boston-area fridges do rely on one another in a network for help and advice, each fridge has its own distinct community flavor. This one is painted bright red with a girl on the front. The words free food are painted in Spanish, English, and Haitian Creole on one side, and on the other, rooted in abolition and love. A hat tip, she says, to the Haitian community's tenacity and their history of being the first to overthrow their colonizers and lead a black republic.
4: Because we can make change, even though some people can't imagine it, there is a way to make change in our community. Some people couldn't imagine like a community fridge coming to our neighborhood, and now they can imagine that.
5: A testament to the collective power of a community. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Soraya Wintersmith.
0: Recently, we asked you, our listeners, if you've experienced any bright moments during the pandemic. We heard from Gwendolyn maturo Grosso, who lives in upstate New York but listens to Next through CAI on Cape Cod. And she says the bright spot for her has been helping teach her grandson
5: Giovanni second grade. It's really been a great experience. I'm a retired teacher, so I'm just having fun jumping back into school.
0: Yeah. What's, do you have like a story of one of your favorite pandemic days together or
5: moments together? Um, you know, one of the things Giovanni loves, he loves science. He just loves to, you know, create little experiments and stuff. So I bought him a little lab coat set with little science, you know, beakers and eyedropper and stuff. And, uh, puts a little coat on and the goggles. He uses his iPad to take pictures of the before and after. And, uh, I just love seeing that spark of curiosity and his desire to learn more. That was listener Gwendolyn
0: maturo Grosso. If you want to share your pandemic bright spot, leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. Since the killings last year of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, people are talking more openly about racism and inequality. Many workplaces are prioritizing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and some employees are feeling more comfortable talking about experiencing microaggressions. Renee Wells is Director of Education for Equity and Inclusion at Middlebury College in Vermont. She gives trainings on microaggressions and joins us to talk through some best practices. Renee, welcome
2: to Next. Next. Thanks for having me.
0: So some people who are listening have experienced microaggressions, and others might not really have a clear idea of what this means. So could you give us some really concrete examples of microaggressions?
2: Sure. I think it's helpful to start by explaining that microaggressions happen in relation to aspects of our identity that are marginalized in society. So people with disabilities experience microaggressions related to disability and ableism. LGBTQ people experience microaggressions in relationship to sexual orientation and gender identity. People of color experience microaggressions in relation to race and racism, etc. And so the microaggressions are often things that people experience daily, And oftentimes, the people who commit microaggressions don't realize that they're doing so. Microaggressions come in a lot of different shapes. Sometimes it might be a word or a phrase that we use, and we aren't aware of how it's going to impact or land on communities that we're not a part of. Sometimes it's assumptions that we make or questions that we ask. So, for example... A common example for the LGBTQ community is, you know, referring to sexuality as sexual preference, as though it's somehow a choice someone made, like ordering the salad for lunch versus a core aspect of their identity and something that is fundamental to who they are and that they cannot change. And so, you know, there's a lot of very subtle ways in which microaggressions happen when people making comments or asking questions or using language don't even recognize the harm that they're causing. But people who have these identities that have been historically marginalized are experiencing these on an ongoing basis.
0: Now this is a sensitive topic. So let's talk about our responses to this as it happens in our lives. So in the example you gave when people say sexual preferences, what should someone do if they see that happen? How how should they respond?
2: Right. So I think it's really important for folks who are present when microaggressions happen to take on the role of speaking up. The labor of naming microaggressions and doing the work of educating people shouldn't fall on people who are actually already dealing with the impact of microaggressions. So being an active ally And speaking up as an advocate is really important. So, for example, if someone used the phrase sexual preference, you know, one way to, to engage with that is to say, I think it's really important how we talk about people's identities and being mindful of like what is central to someone's identity and their being. And sometimes the language that we use, like preference, might feel dismissive of, you know, who a person fundamentally is. And so I think there's ways to engage around it that doesn't feel combative and that doesn't aim to shame someone for often not knowing but also helps people sort of perspective take and think about how to reframe something in a way that isn't devaluing and that doesn't have the potential to cause harm
0: yeah so what about when we're the ones who commit a microaggression let's say someone calls us out how should we respond
2: I think it's important to acknowledge that we all commit microaggressions and it doesn't reflect on our character. I think a lot of times when we make a microaggression and someone calls us on it, I think we move into that spiral of like shame and feeling bad mostly because what we've said or done doesn't align with how we consciously think about ourselves and who we want to be in the world. And so we tend to get trapped instinctively in that desire almost to defend ourselves to like reestablish ourselves as like a good person. But committing a microaggression doesn't make you a bad person, unless you're committing the microaggression on purpose, which is usually not the case. And so I think one of the things I often tell people is take a deep breath and just give you give yourself a second. And part of what you need to do in that is to f- sort of what I call decenter yourself. Instead of focusing on how you're feeling in that moment, it's really important to center the other person and be able to hear what they're saying and to focus on the unintended impact that you've caused. And so the first thing I often tell people to say is thank you, right? In other words, the person has taken a risk by naming to you that, that you've just said or done something that's caused harm. And oftentimes when people speak out about microaggressions, they get a bunch of more microaggressions back in response that come in the form of, of people being dismissive or trying to explain away or, you know, talking about that they didn't mean it. And those might not also be conscious microaggressions, but they are experienced as really invalidating. And so our ability to sort of like take a deep breath, let go of what we're feeling Think about how the other person has just experienced our comment or action. Thank them for naming it. Apologize for the harm that we've caused. And then I think, you know, in that moment, what can we learn from this? How can we grow? How can we evolve into being a better person?
0: Now, here's another situation. If you're the person who is subjected to microaggressions, and I'll give you a quick example that my editor, who is Mexican-American, shared ahead of this interview, she has long, curly hair, and she's relayed this experience that happens to her often where she'll be out running errands, and other women who are strangers will reach out and touch her hair without asking for permission. And she says it's always white women. So in that scenario where you... Are subjected to a microaggression. What's the best way to deal with that?
2: Yeah, and that's a complicated question because there's two pieces. One, and I think as your editor's narrative clearly illustrates, most of these kinds of microaggressions are repeated patterns. They're things that people experience over and over and over again. And, you know, on the one hand, you know, you have to hold space that, you know, folks should be able to advocate for themselves and to speak out whenever they're experiencing harm. On the other hand, um, it's also exhausting, and it does create a space of vulnerability, because a lot of times people react in ways that cause more harm when you speak up. And so I think it's less that there is a right answer, so much as that there's an answer that makes sense for an individual in any given moment. Sometimes people are in a a space where they want to push back, they want to speak out, they want to name their experience and give voice to that and have that, if not affirmed, but at least heard, right? Um, And at other times, it's just exhausting. And it's a form of self care to remain silent and just to move on. And so I think it's really important not to expect that there's a right way to show up for yourself or for other people. It's just what makes the most sense for the person in the moment.
0: Well, we'll have to leave it there. Renee Wells is Director of Education for Equity and Inclusion at Middlebury College in Vermont. Thank you so much, Renee. It's been great talking to you.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Coming up, the mysterious history behind the Vermont road name Lost Nation Road, plus what we can learn from the sounds of a forest. It's next.
4: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Every
0: year, Vermont Public Radio's people-powered podcast, Brave Little State, answers listener questions about Vermont's mysterious road names. It might not sound like a topic ripe for reporting, but finding out why a road came to get its name can actually uncover some rich history, history that can sometimes be really difficult to find. We'll turn the microphone over now to VPR's Nina Keck, who brings us the history of one Vermont road name. Yeah.
7: Can you hear me? Am, am I still here? I, I can hear you, Ellen. Yeah. Can, can you hear me? Yes, I can. This is Ellen Reed of St. Albans. She's mostly retired now, but she used to spend a lot of time driving for work.
4: Traveling in rural Vermont, I've come across roads that are named Lost Nation Road. I wonder, what does the name Lost Nation refer to? More than one town has them. I've found them in Essex. I found them in Fairfield, Bakersfield, Enosburg. And they seem to be remotely located. Ellen's right. Ellen's right. According
7: to the state's 911 emergency mapping system, there are five separate Lost Nation roads that cross eight different towns, and all are in northern Vermont. Ellen says the name has always made her wonder.
4: Oh, well, I think it conjures up images of mystical things. (laughs) A settlement
7: that didn't make it? I don't know. In Vermont, if you're thirsty, you can pour yourself a Lost Nation beer drama, or comedy are on tap at the Lost Nation Theater in Montpelier, where they would be if we weren't in the midst of a pandemic. Firepower? That's available at Lost Nation Guns and Ammo and Swanton. But the stories behind this phrase? That, dear listeners, became a bit of a goose chase. According to Esther Swift's book of Vermont Place Names, the Lost Nation Road in East Fairfield was probably a nickname, since it was an area far from the more settled section of town. Swift's entry on the Lost Nation Road in Essex was equally bland. Seems someone got lost in that area, and when he was found, he announced he'd been at Lost Nation. Not much to go on. Town of Bakersfield, this is Tammy hi Tammy this is Nina Keck. to try to answer Radio. this question How are you? I made a lot of calls town clerks librarians longtime residents and historical society members
6: <laughs> that doesn't mean I know all this stuff I've only lived here a little
4: over 20 years I don't really know anything about where I come from
7: okay so first of all what's your name again it's now that I know that it's not a prank call. Oh, yeah, fair enough. You can Google me.
8: I don't know anybody around now that would even know how hell he got his name. Uh, Gary Montague. Uh, that, that's his sister. Okay,
6: N-I-N-A. Correct. Right
8: no, tongue. not really. Not, not the history of it. I just know the name of it. I, I've only lived here since 1987. Just. Yeah.
7: <laughs> Despite all those phone calls. Well, thank you very much for your help. I appreciate it.
8: Okay.
1: All <laughs> right,
7: <laughs> good luck. I struck out. I did not find any solid answers or fleshed out theories on the Lost Nation roads in Bakersfield, Berkshire, or East Haven, which Craftsbury resident Dave Link nicely rubbed in.
8: So you've still got a mystery.
7: (laughs) But Dave said, we're not the only ones curious about the name. He said the Craftsbury Historical Society, which he's a member of, discussed this very topic back in 2015 during one of their meetings.
8: Lost Nation Road. Yeah. Yeah. Lost Nation Road. This one puzzles me. Well, yeah.
6: When did they name it and by whom? That's the big, those are the two big Well, ones. there was a hippie colony. Yeah.
7: One gentleman remembers a hippie colony in North Walcott that called themselves Lost Nation Farm. They'd previously lived in Craftsbury. Maybe they named the road, he wondered. Others weren't sure. I can't see the moderator at this meeting, but I imagine he's shrugging his shoulders at this point as he looks around the room and hears no clear consensus.
6: Well, there's a history's mysteries.
7: Another of history's mysteries, he declares, and moves on to the next quirky road name. Russ Spring has a family business on the Lost Nation Road in Craftsbury, His parents founded the Craftsbury Outdoor Center back in the 1970s, and he's heard several theories about the road name.
9: The most interesting one was a story told by Earl Wilson, who was an old-timer, who many years ago actually plotted the route of the Bailey-Hazen Road as it went through Craftsbury.
7: Russ mentioned the Bailey-Hazen Trail. Like, I should know what it was. But I didn't, and it's worth explaining. I think some fife and drum music would help here. During the Revolutionary War, the Continental Army needed a shorter route to Canada to help in their siege of Quebec. So in 1776, George Washington ordered this new road to be cleared and built between what is now Newbury, Vermont, and St. John's, Quebec, near Montreal. Jacob Bailey and Moses Hazen were the key instigators of building it. So that's where that road name comes from. If only Lost Nation were as easily explained. Anyway, work on the Bailey-Hazen Road proceeded in fits and starts for several years during the Revolution until it was eventually abandoned. According to Earl Wilson's theory, that revolutionary war trail May help explain the Lost Nation Road in Craftsbury.
9: When they were kind of clearing that trail, they came across a pre-existing trail and they decided, well, this must we we're going to call this uh, Lost Nation Road after the the Lost Nation of Israel that must have made it. But in fact, Earl thought it was more likely a uh, a trail that was made by Native Americans along the side of the the lake. And uh, it just uh, intersected the route of the uh, Bailey-Hazen Road. And that was how he told the story.
7: This Native American connection comes up a lot, and not just in Vermont. There are actually Lost Nation roads all over the country. I asked Rich Holshue about this.
8: I am a resident of Wontostagok, better known as Brattleboro, Vermont. I serve as a spokesperson for the El Nu Tribe. tribes. Uh, here in southern Vermont.
7: Rich is a researcher of local indigenous culture. He doesn't know of any corresponding Abenaki references in the Vermont towns with Lost Nation roads. He thinks the name reflects a broader story of the erasure and displacement of Native people, a story that he says has been cloaked in mystery and fantasy.
8: Americans love to romanticize Native heritage. We name our athletic teams, we name our, our butter after them, we, all, all, all different things. It becomes a romantic thing, and it's got very little to do with truth in that the building of this country is founded upon displacing all of that and uh, exploiting it.
7: Rich says a road sign with the name Lost Nation helps sustain a stereotype that Native American communities are gone. That, of course, is false.
8: What they don't realize is that the Native person might be standing right next to them and looks exactly like them. And the reason that they don't see that is because they weren't taught that. They're ignorant of that. And if one does not recognize or know about something, you don't care about it.
7: Native people are still here, says Rich. They haven't vanished. But what happened to them, the occupation, the colonization, the reality of that, is hard to face.
8: And so it's a lot easier to have Lost Nations.
7: Tim German has been doing his own sleuthing on the history of Lost Nation Road, where he lives in Essex. Here, he thinks the name recalls a different kind of community. Kind of a nasty day to go exploring. Yeah,
6: but I got some umbrellas, so we will we not have to go far.
7: On a rainy Monday, Tim drives me to northwest Essex part of town historians refer to as the Lost Nation area.
6: There's not much you can see on it now. It's just a dirt road in the country.
7: Tim's been researching early 19th century homesteads in this area. But
6: all of this road, and especially out here, the names, Wood, that's an Irish name, Shanley is an Irish name, and all of these people I found in the census, they were all born in Ireland.
7: We get out of his car to hike in nearby Indian Brook Park which backs up on the Lost Nation Road.
6: You'll see how rocky and hardscrabble it it is. It's right here. This is the... doesn't look like much, but that's a man-made... That was a cellar hole right there. And this was one of the Day families.
7: Using historical records, Tim's been able to identify a large number of homesteads, some, like this one, are now nothing more than echoes, rocky holes covered with sticks and brambles, hidden alongside the trail.
6: And then you come to find out that there's at least 30 families, and then as your time goes on, more than that, you know, moving in, and they're very Irish, and they're in the poorest part of town. And as you start to think about it, if you hike here in the fall or the winter, and you start, oh my God, winter here before any amenities, but this was a difficult, difficult life. So I, I just started to think, Lost Nation. Um, Lost Nation is their homeland.
7: There's something very poetic about the name Lost Nation. Almost sad, a little bit. It
6: is very poetic, yeah. It is sad. It's evocative of something that was there before. You know, there were people living here, and there was a community here. And then, over time, it just became too hard.
0: That was Nina Keck, digging into the history behind Lost Nation Road for Vermont Public Radio's podcast, Brave Little State. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and the United States Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. At the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in northern New Hampshire, the pandemic broke a decades-long streak of field research. Now, scientists there are adapting with new technology and remotely recording the sounds of the forest. They hope this will transform their long record of a changing world, a record that once helped inspire the Clean Air Act. As part of New Hampshire Public Radio's climate change project, By Degrees, reporter Annie Ropiek went to the forest to learn more.
10: Dartmouth biologist Matt Ayers stands out in camo and cargo pants against the bright yellow of the woods in late fall. He's got binoculars around his neck, and he's loading gear from his truck into a backpack. So we've got
3: batteries, a drill, microphones, GPS.
10: Ayers' specialty is caterpillars, but today he's bringing me along on a bird monitoring mission in this 12-square-mile research forest on the southeast slopes of Mount Moosalak, It's where scientists first discovered acid rain, which Ayers says has transformed environmental protection in America.
3: So when they started collecting those water samples and analyzing the chemistry, they didn't know that that would inspire the Clean Air Act of 1967. And they didn't know that those same samples now uh, show that the Clean Air Act has been one of the best examples of environmental stewardship ever.
10: Over the years, research here has created a remarkably useful record of a single changing forest. But until recently, Ayers says, it's been missing one crucial feature of the landscape.
3: No one knows what it sounded like in the Hubbard Brook Forest, even five years ago. Uh, Sounds leave no fossils, no isotopic signatures. For the most part, they're here one millisecond and gone the next.
10: Sound can be a key measure of an ecosystem's health, revealing the behavior of, say, migratory songbirds and how they're reacting to changing weather patterns. Ayers shows me a strip of forest where scientists have surveyed those birds every summer for 51 years and recently began taking audio samples.
3: It's globally extraordinary data, but uh, there will always be an asterisk on on 2020.
10: The COVID-19 pandemic made it impossible for field biologists to live together at Hubbard Brook during survey season. So Ayers says they had to find new ways to fill in the gaps. They turned to their sound recorders and set them up in this part of the woods to run on their own.
3: Up this ridge uh, and off in both directions from us is a network of 30 passive acoustic recorders uh, that all turn themselves on at the same time in the morning, uh, record for three hours, turn themselves off, come back for another hour uh, in the evening. And uh, it's amazing. There's a symphony.
10: The success of remote recording last summer gave them the idea to do it again, during mud season, when the roads and trails of the forest are all but impassable, and the migratory birds are just starting to come back from the tropics to breed in New Hampshire. So today, Ayers is programming these recorders to turn on by themselves in the spring, weeks before a human can check on them. He guides me off the road and into the woods. So
3: it's this way, less than 100 meters,
10: Ayers follows his compass and GPS through the brush down a steep slope to the edge of the brook. Strapped to a tree is a metal equipment box. He opens it up and starts loading it with big new batteries, a fresh sound card, and a tiny microphone. The system and all the others like it in this valley will start recording at 5 a.m. on April
3: 15th. I've done things like this before, long-term monitoring. With, or I'm orienteering around to put sensors in, but they were temperature recorders, mainly. Uh, some some other things, but nothing that produces the volumes of data uh, that a sound recorder does.
10: Air says a major goal this year is to record the bird's spring return from the tropics for the first time. Spring is coming earlier in New Hampshire due to climate change. And how these migratory birds react is a case study for how that shift affects the whole ecosystem.
3: We've never been more interested in the timing of events than than we are now because that's one of the most dramatic and evident changes associated with climate warming.
10: Scientists can already learn a lot about that from their sound recordings. And with artificial intelligence, they're getting better at picking apart the songbird chorus— Isolating the calls of species like the black-throated blue warbler, a focus of the annual survey. Ayer says there's no telling how these recordings might benefit future scientists, the same way they're still learning from the early acid rain samples that made Hubbard Brook famous.
3: It's inspiring to all the researchers that, that work on this, knowing that you're, you know, you're contributing to this data stream. Uh, which is going to have value that goes beyond what we can imagine now. Uh, Like, you know, being able to go back and reanalyze those samples of bottled water from the Hubbard Brook uh, and validate that the Clean Air Act worked. How powerful is that?
10: As the world works on other tools to address climate change, Ayres says Hubbard Brook hopes to continue to be useful in ways scientists may not have even considered yet. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropiek.
0: And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. And if you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.com. Org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Publix Radio.